I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. This week's episode is all about Zuck. After months of avoiding responsibility, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg finally testified before Congress. On Tuesday, he was in the Senate, and on Wednesday, he faced representatives in the House. Both days, he traded his usual hoodie and jean outfit for a suit and tie, but the focus wasn't on his wardrobe, it was on Facebook's privacy practices. My colleague Meg Dalton sat down with our new Tao editor, Sam Thielman, to break down what Zuckerberg said and didn't say at the hearings this week. Then we'll wrap up the episode with a discussion of the controversy at the Denver Post and a brief preview of next week's Pulitzers. But first, here's Meg and Sam. So for those who don't follow Facebook as much as you do, what was the impetus for this week's double header of hearings? Well, so um, back when it was first revealed that Russian intelligence services had been using uh, social media, especially Facebook and Twitter, to try and game the election in particular ways, which, again, this is this was an effort of dubious, you know, magnitude and success. But just the fact that it existed was extremely disturbing. And so there were um, hearings last year where um, basically everybody sent their attorney. In those hearings, which were, I believe, before both intelligence committees, the senators and congressmen all in in both hearings expressed um, extreme disappointment that uh, the CEOs of the companies hadn't deigned to show up themselves. So uh, as time went on, further and further information came out about the depth and extent of Facebook's collaboration, not just with Russian intelligence, but also uh, with a developer named Alexander Kogan, who had developed an app that was then used by Cambridge Analytica, which supplied data to the Trump campaign. That app scraped a bunch of people's data, and then it scraped their friends' data in a way that Facebook at first wasn't so sure was bad and then later said was a terrible violation of their terms of service. So at that point, it kind of became incumbent on Zuckerberg to show up and not defer to one of his underlings. Which brings us to Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. Yes. So you spent hours glued to your computer <laughs> watching both of Zuckerberg's congressional on. appearances. It's still happening. I'm glad that you we could, we could steal you away for a little I bit. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> it's, a, it's healthy to get away from the screens yeah. <laughs> and be put in a really warm studio. Yeah, indeed. So I didn't tune in for the whole thing, but from what I did watch, nothing really surprised me. Members of Congress didn't ask great questions, especially on Tuesday. And the substance of Zuckerberg's actual testimony was meh. Yeah. So I'm curious, what's your biggest takeaway from the two days? There have been a couple of things. I mean, first, I think I, one of the odd things is that you usually get better questions out of the Senate because it's a smaller chamber and the legislators are more experienced and most of them were congressmen at one point. In this uh, hearing, in the, this pair of hearings, the Senate was, I mean, seemed very lazy and woefully underprepared. You did hear a lot of people saying, you know, don't dunk on these senators. They're, you know, the tech press hasn't actually done a very good job of explaining these incredibly complex problems of the Internet economy and, uh, you know, real-time bidding and targeted advertising to their readers. And that's true, but the average reader also doesn't have a number of congressional staffers and secretaries who are supposed to be reading this stuff in depth and explaining it to them. So it really appeared that the senators hadn't done their homework very well. 
well, which is extremely disappointing. There were a couple of questions that were sort of obviously written by staffers and asked in kind of a halting way that Zuckerberg mm. easily dodged. And then, the um, you know, the legislators didn't have the um, the ability to follow up. So on Wednesday morning, Zuckerberg went before uh, the House, uh, which is usually kind of a clown show, but it's been a really <laughs> great and entertaining clown show and a much better clown show than it has been in the past. And um, Zuckerberg took some really hard questions. Some of them were not great questions either. There are a number of um, conservative senators concerned about um, Facebook censoring conservative views. In fact, two different representatives said that they had personally called Facebook to intervene on behalf of a constituent who was getting uh, their posts taken down, one explicitly for their conservative views. So um, it, it's hard to tell what this what these people were posting, but that that's what the conservative side was worried about. But there were, you know, there are also uh, liberal senators and then more tech-savvy conservative senators uh, worried about the intrusions on personal privacy um, and uh, sort of unaccountable private industry. So it was heartening to see that it is a little bit grandstandy, and the real work of these guys is not actually done in these hearings. It's done in the sessions where they write and mark up the bills. So we'll see what comes out of it. But overall, did we learn anything new? Uh, We learned a couple of things. Uh, The biggest one of those things is that Corgan, who scraped the original data that caused all the problem with Cambridge Analytica, didn't just provide that data to Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. Uh, He sent it to Zuckerberg, described as a few other firms. Um, He won't say who those firms are. So it's it'll be very interesting to know what the extent of that was and uh, where else this stuff went, because Facebook's sort of contention during this is that they don't sell your data. They just sell access to your data. And the thing that really gives that lie is the way that Corgan was allowed, again, with apparently no problem in 2015, to gather all this information and then kind of shop it around. Like it, It's sort of inconceivable that any, no one else did that. And what are some of the questions that weren't asked that you were hoping would be or maybe weren't asked in the right way? Roy Blunt, a senator from Missouri, tried very hard to ask whether or not Facebook users were allowed to opt out of specific kinds of tracking, which, of course, they're not. Um, He wasn't able to articulate that question in a way that Zuckerberg wasn't able to dodge. Zuckerberg looked like Deep Blue playing chess with the sixth grade chess club um, (laughs) yesterday. But that may not actually help him in the long run because, again, those senators are going to go home embarrassed. Everybody lined up to spank them this morning. And when they come back, they will feel lied to, misled and humiliated by this guy. And then their job is to go craft legislation that affects his company. In terms of stuff that I I wish I had seen asked a little more clearly, I I was mostly thinking of things I wish they hadn't asked. Everybody. Oh, I mean, I mean, we know what what do you wish they had not asked? Well, you multiple. Multiple people asked Zuckerberg if they were using the microphones on people's cell phones to oh, listen yeah. to their conversation. No, they're not doing that. I saw your they're tweet not. about that and laughed out loud. <laughs> in, in, in the Senate <laughs> hearing and then again in the House hearing. I wish people were leaning harder on Facebook about how it cooperates with the U.S. government. That's not a question that was asked in enough depth. I think a couple of people accepted kind of a... a pro forma answer from Zuckerberg on it. And I wish people would ask a little more deeply, under what circumstances do you share information? Do you always require a subpoena or do you sometimes require a subpoena? Um, When the cops tell you that there's imminent danger of somebody's life in a uh, situation where they're asking for, you know, private messages, do you take them at their word? 
that kind of information is really valuable to the general public. And I don't think these folks have thought about it deeply enough to, to, to care, frankly. So there's a lot of softballing kind of on that topic. Yeah. And I think just a lack of knowledge generally about how not not merely about the technical processes involved in pulling people's private information, but in the legal processes necessary to uh, or th- that ought to be necessary to get it. And I, I don't th- I think people are kind of thinking fuzzily about that generally. I also wish there was more pushback on Facebook's nebulous definition of itself. There have been a few good questions about this, but generally speaking, I don't understand why they're allowed to pretend they're not a publisher. And, they obviously, and, and that's the, the big question from the last right. hearing, which was media company versus technology platform. Right. Zuckerberg was observing that they uh, make airplanes too. You know, Are they an avionics company? Maybe. I do think it's really important to define them as a media company because they are one. They exercise editorial judgment. And then they kind of, they hedge and they say, we want speech to be as free as possible. But they are usually doing that around not so much their convictions as around their capabilities. Mm. And from a media perspective, since that's what we obsess about at CJR, what's the significance of Zuckerberg's appearance? I can't remember the last time a single CEO was the only witness in two consecutive congressional hearings. I don't think I've ever seen that. You usually see people's lawyers. You often see CEOs flanked by a gigantic, you know, coterie of their um, professional colleagues. You know, you'll, you'll see like all the automotive, all, all you'll see like a bunch of people from the automotive industry lined up, um, but you won't see like one guy having to answer. And part of that speaks to the uniqueness of Zuckerberg's position. There's not really a company like Facebook. So the Facebook conversation obviously is not going to end now that Zuckerberg has appeared in Congress. So what direction do you see it taking in the coming days, weeks, months? There's enough blowback from Republican senators about perceived algorithmic bias against conservative news sources that I kind of think we're going to see a lot more privileging of hard right sites like Breitbart and The Daily Caller. I'm sorry we're going to see that. I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. One congressman brought out a a poster board with a picture of diamond and silk uh, to uh, conservative black women who support Donald Trump from his... uh, district. He was probably the fifth person to ask about uh, their page being banned. That conservative news sources have turned into kind of a cause celebrity for these various uh, senators, I think, is a a thing that Facebook won't take lightly and will, um, you know, continue to work on. And so it sounds like just overall it was a a big dose of policy theater. I, I mean, I think you are seeing people who have a couple of promising bills flog them to Zuckerberg. But one of the sobering things that um, uh, John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, said yesterday in the Senate hearing is that um, they're not going to pass any bills without Zuckerberg's help. If he wants to dump $10 million into a you know, lobbying campaign to shut down something, that will succeed. So the question is really whether Facebook and Congress can come to uh, common agreement on legislation, which is a sad place to be as a society. Turning from tech platforms to old-fashioned newspapers, I'm joined by my colleagues, John Alsup and Alex Neeson. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Sup. 
So this past weekend, the Denver Post took a pretty remarkable stand, publishing a special opinion section on Sunday. It was titled News Matters, and the paper's lead editorial criticized its owner, Alden Global Capital, which is a New York-based hedge fund, stating that, quote, if Alden isn't willing to do good journalism here, it should sell the post to owners who will. This was followed up uh, later on Sunday morning by New York Times editor Dean Baquet saying that the biggest crisis in journalism isn't Trump's attacks on papers like The Post and The Times. He said, quote, it's the decline of local newspapers. So when we talk about the Denver Post and Alden Global Capital as this hedge fund owning a, a series of papers, what are we worried about here? Well, we're worried about folks who really don't care about uh, good journalism owning these big chains of newspapers. And I think this is something we see uh, all over America. I think it was it was referenced in um, CJR's local news issue last year quite a bit. These are people who come in, sort of try and hike the number of subscriptions and advertising revenue, while at the same time aggressively cutting costs, which usually means laying off reporters, which of course always means less good coverage of you know, particularly in small local markets, municipal functions that, that really do need to be scrutinized by local papers. And it's not just in Denver. It's also not just Olden Global Capital as well. But when it does come to Olden Global Capital, it's not just in, in Denver that they're making difficult layoffs. Uh, we saw this happen, I think, earlier this year with papers belonging to the Southern California News Group, including the, the Orange County Register. Yeah, the San Jose Mercury News was a similar thing, down from 400 reporters to under 100. Uh, right. It's pretty, it's bad. Right. You know, really, this is um, this is about, as, as the Denver Post editorial, I think, kind of bravely phrased it, this is about vulture capital firms coming in and essentially picking over the carrion of newspapers that are already, already in a pretty bad way financially. This kind of overlaps also with union issues in an interesting way. The most recent examples at the LA Times, obviously, with Tronk and uh, looking at the way that their union efforts sort of overlapped with their larger issues with how the paper was being run. And resulted in them ending up with a new owner, which is something that the Post asked for also. Yeah, we saw this also with DNA Info here in New York, which is not a traditional newspaper, um, but was a very local publication and also had this sort of vulture billionaire owner who came in and was really focused on making money. And then as soon as union efforts uh, began, he ended up shutting the entire thing down. And so the result, the end result is the same, is that there's um, a dearth of reporters covering a major municipal market. Yeah, that's especially uh, concerning in Denver, because I mean, this is a big city that's kind of a regional hub, right? And they already had the Rocky Mountain News shut down. I think that was back in 2009, uh, after the financial crash. You know, I mean, I've read sort of articles from the Times saying it was really concerning that Denver was going to become just a one newspaper town. That was bad enough. I mean, now we're looking down the barrel of it potentially in a couple of years being a no newspaper town unless unless the hedge fund owners kind of change tack or, or alternatively sell the paper. Although what is interesting, you know, and I think this speaks to your point, uh, Pete, when you were saying that, you know, these ownership changes kind of can happen. You know, I was reading an article just in preparation for this about the Rocky Mountain news closure, and it said that the San Francisco Chronicle was in real trouble and that that, that might shut down. I mean, we've seen, you know, they, they've actually had a revival. Uh, we did a piece last year which suggested they were doing pretty well financially. So these kind of redemptions are possible. Yeah, I mean, revival is definitely not impossible. We've seen it uh, in a little bit of a different situation with the Washington Post as Jeff Bezos came in. And that's something that certainly everybody on the West Coast is hoping for with the LA Times. I just wonder if we're diminishing our options here when it comes down to 
journalists who are at these papers requesting a billionaire white knight to come in and own them. Um, you know, that wasn't the only option that the Denver Post editorial gave. They asked for civic engagement, for political engagement, for the community really to rise up and say, for this city of 700,000 people, we need a newsroom with more than 100 journalists. Uh, and actually, after the latest round of layoffs earlier this week, the Post is now below 100 journalists. And you know, we can talk about vulture hedge funds. We can talk about, as we often do, the financial pressures of the industry. But the bigger issue here is that citizens aren't getting uh, the sort of watchdog accountability coverage that they need and have uh, come to expect from their newspapers in the past. Do you think really that public outcry is going to some way translate into financial support, which is really the bottom line here? I mean, I think a lack of reporters and all of the things, uh, all of the consequences of that from the public's perspective about stories that don't get told, people not around to you know keep people in positions of power in check and all of those things. I think that we all realize that, but I wonder whether, I think we need both of those things. We need like a public outcry and we also need somebody with money who can come in and, and do something because I don't think that just the public outcry, like that doesn't produce dollars. And I mean, I don't know if in it, where the public outcry comes from also, I think, is important, um, whether it's actual readers in Denver or if it's just the larger national journalism community that is rightfully uh, upset about this, um, but are not the folks that are most impacted. Yeah, all of this is taking place against a backdrop of a lack of public trust in journalism, uh, sort of skepticism there. And yes, we can hope for somebody to come in with a lot of money to save these places, but it also is incumbent upon these different journalism outlets to find a business model that works. Mm -hmm. um, and when it is a, a hedge fund like Alden Global Capital, who's making money by cutting costs, uh, increasing subscription prices, and kind of taking care of their bottom line. That's one situation. But we do still need to figure out something that works for these local papers, you know, places beyond the New York Times and Washington Post who have a national audience. Uh, I don't know what that is. Cer certainly there's experiments out there, and we've kind of beaten this topic to death and still have no answers. I also don't know that uh, groups like Alden are under any pressure to figure out what that new model is. A New York-based company is just kind of going to do what they're doing, which is what they've done so far. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking of the Post specifically, there was this picture of the newsroom in 2013, kind of this, this huge group of people taken just after they won the 2013 Pulitzer for their coverage of the theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado. Then with all of the people who had been laid off blacked out, that kind of symbolized what's going on there. Um, and speaking of the Pulitzer that they won, that brings us to a little bit of a preview of next week when the Pulitzers will be announced here at Columbia University. We want to take a chance because we don't get to look back too often at some of the stories that we're maybe expecting to win or just our favorites that we would love to see win. This year has been dominated in large part by political reporting, of course, but also major occurrence um, like the Me Too coverage and certain breaking news events. So, Alex, is there any storyline you're expecting to see recognized next week? Um, I'm hoping to see uh, some Me Too coverage um, really penetrate the like the way the political coverage that has dominated the last two years. Um, I would be surprised if it didn't. Um, the run and fair with the New Yorker uh, and the New York Times coverage that broke the Weinstein story and then all of the reporting that came after that. I, I think those are things that we're likely to see pick some awards up. Yeah, I'm actually interested to see which of those two they choose mm -hmm. um, because both have won 
awards. This is kind of like the Oscars of journalism, right? We've had several awards leading up to it, and Farrow has been recognized, the work of Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor at The Times, uh, The Washington Post doing their reporting on Roy Moore led by Stephanie McCrumman. That coverage has also been recognized. It'll be interesting to see which of those they choose. Yeah, especially because it's like the Roy Moore reporting in some ways happened because the Harvey Weinstein reporting happened first. Um, But with Roy Moore, I mean, there were definitely tangible changes uh, and consequences after the Weinstein stuff. I think the Roy Moore story with The Washington Post was really interesting because there was an election that happened right in the middle of all of that. And then we all saw like a really concrete change uh, that happened after reporting. So... And we should mention that the Pulitzers do have different categories that makes it possible for them to recognize all of this if they so choose. One could be public service, one national reporting, uh, one investigative work. We could see all three of those examples get recognized. But John, what are you uh, looking forward to? Yeah, well, I I also, you know, I agree with Alex. I think that that kind of thematic is likely to run through it. Uh, The Pulitzers always kind of do make an effort to, in some respect, reflect the national zeitgeist. And I think that has been the really guiding story in this kind of second year of of Trump in particular. Um, I think also just as a side note, I think the Roy Moore story is probably likely to do well because there was that attempt to to discredit the whole thing by James O'Keefe and Veritas so kind of skillfully diffused by McCrumman and the Post that that kind of therefore does play into that idea of the the mainstream media kind of taking its responsibility to the facts seriously. So I'd be surprised if that wasn't honored. And I also think that probably Tui, Kanza and Farrow are all in one category or another as close to being a slam dunk as you can be at the Pulitzers. One category I'm watching is breaking news because they actually just changed the rules on this. It used to be local only for the last kind of, I think, like 10 to 15 years. They've now opened that out a bit more broadly, which makes me wonder whether they're trying to maybe put some Mueller coverage in there. That's kind of, you know, the kind of times in the post have actually sort of won these kind of like awards for their Mueller coverage that haven't necessarily focused on any one article, but just the whole kind of thing as an ongoing effort. That said, you know, those kind of awards have gone to things like the Denver Post's coverage of the Aurora shooting. And we've had lots of those kind of big local news events that I would be surprised if they weren't in contention. Yeah, if I had to predict that, uh, which, again, we should mention, although we are here in the building with the Pulitzer office, we have no knowledge at all of what they're going to do. Um, I expect that the Houston Chronicle's coverage of Hurricane Harvey might get a mention, either a nomination or, or a win. Um, maybe the Las Vegas Journal Review for what they did after uh, the shooting out there. Um, you know, one one thing I'm interested in and I guess kind of expecting is that although we've had so much Trump coverage, there's no particular story or series of stories that I can think of. I mean, Maggie Haberman's been great. Phil Rucker and Ashley Parker at The Washington Post have been great. There's no one storyline, though, that stands out in the way, say, David Fahrenholt did last year, for which he was recognized with the Pulitzer. So I wonder if the Trump coverage is just going to be completely shut out. Yeah, I mean, that's a a possibility. I I do actually expect that some... Russia investigation-related coverage will get some kind of gong. As, as you say, I think that's kind of seen as a, as a whole thing. Um, I do think just on the subject of continuity from last year's awards that we are probably going to see a couple of similar things win this year to those that were honored last year. I mean, last year, uh, the Charleston Gazette Mail won for this opioid package it did. Last year, we uh, later last year, we saw the Cincinnati Inquirer do this fantastic week long package on the effects of the opioid uh, epidemic in their community. I would be unsurprised to see that get uh, some kind of nod. And we had the Paradise Papers, too. I mean, this was a widely forgotten story last year because didn't kind of have the same splashy global impact as the Panama Papers. 
But really, that's had kind of this, uh, I wrote this piece saying it had a quiet impact in the sense that it has um, sort of got on the radar of tax regulators in the European Union and in other countries. Um, that was, uh, you know, again, a phenomenal and kind of still groundbreaking even though it was the second time they'd done a similar project, there were things about it that were new. It was a phenomenal piece of reporting. And I would be, again, unsurprised if that was in contention. Yeah, well, the awards will be live streamed next week. Both of you guys, I think, will be in the room where they're announced, which is a very cool moment. I'm uh, going to win one. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. JK. We forgot to add that to the <laughs> predictions. Um, but yeah, we encourage everybody to check it out and read the coverage that we'll have up at cjra.org. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to my colleagues Meg Dalton and Sam Thielman for their really engaging conversation about what's been going on down in D.C. with Facebook. And thanks to John and Alex for being here to talk over the news of the week with me. Please check out all the great coverage we've got up at cjra.org, and we'll see you next week.